strategic competition in the Pacific. Australia and others do need to think more about how we manage our behaviour in the region. You know, the Pacific is capable of managing it, but we are, should also be better capable of managing ourselves. Deterring the PRC. Deterrence occurs in the other person's mind. So we have to take into account what that person is thinking when we're trying to deter them or to coerce them. Australia's climate policy. Climate hotspots, so the hazards climate change is amplifying, will hit that region more severely than virtually any region in the world, and there are 400 million people living there. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Livia Nelson. First up this week, Lisa Sharland is joined by Joanne Wallace, Professor of International Security at the University of Adelaide, to discuss her chapter on strategic competition in the Pacific Islands in the Institute for International and Strategic Studies, Asia-Pacific Regional Security Assessment 2021. They discuss the challenges posed by strategic competition in the region, opportunities for Australian engagement, and the need for Australia to work with partners in the region. Professor Joanne Wallace, welcome to the ASPE podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I wanted to talk a little bit today about a recent article that you've written for the International Institute for Strategic Studies as part of their Asia-Pacific Regional Security Assessment for 2021, which looks at strategic competition and the Pacific Islands. I wanted to get your thoughts on what you see as the key developments that we're seeing in the region at the moment as it relates both to traditional regional powers but also perhaps some of those that we haven't seen as engaged in the region previously. And in particular, it would be really useful to get your insights on what you think some of the implications are in terms of this for the region and broader security at the moment. Yes, well, as the Pacific Island Forum leaders have described themselves, the region is more crowded and complex. That's the phrasing that they used in their 2018 Boy Declaration on Regional Security And there definitely is a sense that there are more powers now engaged in the region in a a more determined way than they have been for quite some time, probably since the end of the Cold War. So there are the traditional powers such as Australia and New Zealand and, of course, the US and France with both have territories in the Pacific. But other outside powers are now more, um, more involved A lot of the attention goes to China, and that is with good reason. China has made a much more concerted effort to enhance its presence in the last few years. But we can't forget that Taiwan has long been in the the Pacific. Japan, India and Indonesia are two more recent arrivals, and not recent in their presence, but recent in their focus. So there is a there is a quite a lot going on, and there is a sense, perhaps, that, that the space is becoming, as the forum leaders described, more crowded as a result. And that is having consequences for the Pacific. So the increased presence of outside powers raises challenges because they do have to manage a lot more players in the region and a lot more active players in the region. This has challenges because the presence of those powers is meaning that they are wanting to engage more with government officials. There are a challenge of just managing the day-to-day business of hosting, of meeting with these officials. If you think about most Pacific states have relatively small public services And what I've been hearing is there is actually just a lot of work in meeting all these delegations from the high comms and and embassies on a regular basis. Of course, that is slightly suppressed at the moment by COVID limiting travel, so they're not getting as many outside delegations as as they were. 
But there is just the day-to-day -day work of managing outside powers. And then there's the day-to-day -day work of managing what those outside powers are seeking to do. So Australia has its step up, New Zealand has its specific reset, the US has made its specific pledge, the UK has a Pacific uplift, France is now talking about the Pacific as part of its Indo-Pacific strategy um, and so on and so forth. And each of these pledges and uplifts and step-ups comes with resources. But there are challenges of managing how those resources are allocated and targeted and spent. We are seeing a sense of overcrowding in some spaces and then other spaces being underinvested. Challenges to absorptive capacity too for Pacific Island governments. You know, there are, with large sums of money coming in, that does raise just logistical and, and management issues about how that money is spent. So there is a real, this is raising a lot of issues for the Pacific. And then there's also the issue at the political level too. You know, this has long been a challenge in the Pacific. We've seen it mainly in the past in the context of diplomatic competition between China and Taiwan has had ramifications for political stability in the Pacific. We've seen this most notably in the Solomon Islands. It was a real issue there and the tensions that led to the instability that then was followed by the regional assistance mission to Solomon Islands. But that didn't stop, you know, even though the, the Ramsey was there in 2006, there was the riots that followed the election in Solomon Islands, and that was rooted at least partly in China-Taiwan competition. Similar dynamics in Tonga in 2006, where there were riots in Nukualofa, and again, that had its roots in that diplomatic competition. So this is not a new phenomenon for the Pacific. They are used to dealing with it, but it's the increased tempo that is the real challenge. And we've seen this most recently in 2019 with Solomon Islands and Kiribati making their switches from recognising Taiwan to having diplomatic relations with China. That has had domestic consequences in both of those states. It's most troubling in Solomon Islands, or at least there's the most potential, I would, would say, for instability in the Solomon Islands where the, the diplomatic competition has played out and has integrated and, and has met domestic challenges that have long roots. And that is particularly the tensions between the Malaita province and Guadalcanal, which is the main island, Hone and where Honiara, the capital is, where most of the economic development has historically taken place. These tensions are longstanding. So there is a real risk that this broader strategic competition, diplomatic competition will have very serious consequences for political stability in the Pacific. And there is just also the risk that the more money that is sloshing around, the more effort that powers are making to influence politicians will have consequences for democracy and stability throughout the region. So there is a lot going on at the moment and partners and powers like Australia and others do need to think more about how we manage our behaviour in the region. You know, the Pacific is capable of managing it, but we are, should also be better capable of managing ourselves. I just wanted to, to jump in there, Joanne, around your comment about divisions being stoked in the region potentially at the moment. Do you think enough thinking is being undertaken by countries that are looking to invest in the region at the moment about some of the unexpected consequences that may be resulting from some of this competition? I would say no. I think the, the Solomon Islands example that I started is a really good example of this, where perhaps without sufficient knowledge or forethought, the US has become involved. And this was primarily under the Trump administration, but, you know, it's not been stopped by the Biden administration. But, you know, they've become involved there, as I said, in that diplomatic competition between Taiwan and China in the Solomons. And that is having unhelpful consequences. And I think it's where partners or powers aren't 
thinking through the consequences of their behaviour. They're thinking at a very high geopolitical level, but it has real consequences for the lived experience of the lives of, of Pacific Island states and people. This is the point that I think is really important for Australia and others is we need to be managing ourselves and encouraging our partners to manage themselves and coordinate better than we have been in the last few years. The description I've heard from someone in the Pacific is that certain powers are behaving a bit like a bull in a china shop. In the Pacific, there's this sense that we need to do something. Here's money, here's ideas, but not a lot of planning and not a lot of thought about the long-term consequences and how those ideas and spending and other developments play out with local dynamics. On that point at the moment, I'd be interested in getting your thoughts around vaccine diplomacy. There's There's been a bit of discussion about what countries should be doing in terms of supporting the region at the moment, given the resources they have to bring to bear. How do you see that playing out at the moment? And is this just sort of an extension of some of these broader sort of power plays that perhaps we've seen from some countries in the region? Yeah, I think there could be. I have a grant from Department of Defence, and part of that grant is that we've been mapping security coordination across the Pacific. And A couple of weeks ago, we launched our interactive map. We did literally map it, but we also have an accompanying report. And it becomes very clear when you look at the map and when you read the report that partners are very active and have increased their activity, but that a lot of their activity is targeted primarily at what they define as their interests and which don't necessarily reflect the priorities of the Pacific. You can see on our map that transnational crime and cybersecurity are thoroughly (laughs) invested in in the Pacific. Now, in no way diminish their import as security challenges for Pacific Island states, but it's telling that other security challenges that I know from my work in the Pacific and from talking to, to Pacific Islanders that are their more important priorities, you know, thinking about climate change, human security, equitable economic development, these challenges are less well addressed and partners are a lot less focused on them. And the purpose of our mapping process has been to demonstrate this and to to then our next step is to come up with ideas for how partners can coordinate better. So let's watch this space. But I think another thing that, that would be very valuable in the Pacific is creating a platform for some of the discussions about this geostrategic competition, you know, the potential for influence interference, coercion, the need to protect the resilience of of Pacific states to a lot of these forces, thinking better how we can create platforms for those discussions to take place. I've just been thinking through it in a nascent sense, but it's telling to me, I think, that there's no equivalent to the ASEAN Regional Forum in the Pacific and creating a similar kind of institution, or not even as an institution, a forum and an opportunity for Pacific states, but also all the major powers with interest, their major partners to get together on an equal footing and to talk through a lot of these issues, I think would be very valuable. But I think there's also, as I said before, an onus on partners like Australia to be better coordinating with others in the region. It's telling to me that you often go to dialogues or workshops with, you know, different states and their representatives and even with our closest allies like New Zealand and the US, and we're still thinking quite bilaterally in the Pacific. And I think there needs to be a bit of a shift. We think bilaterally because for so long we have been dealing bilaterally. And for so long, especially for Australia and New Zealand, we've kind of seen the Pacific as where we have specific relationships and expertise that that give us standing above perhaps other states. But I think we need to move beyond that and to be thinking how we can work with partners better 
to move beyond the bilateral to the multilaterals. So five delegations aren't turning up in Tonga all having the same idea. One delegation turns up having coordinated with, with other partners. And I think that would be very valuable. But, you know, there's a lot of things, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit in the Pacific that Australia could be doing better. So, you know, it was just actually on Twitter today again, and this has been a in the last few years, something that those of us who care about the Pacific have been talking about, the media landscape in the Pacific. The fact that Australia stepped down <laughs> rather than stepped up our media presence. And that now that Radio New Zealand and China Radio International are the two dominant media forces in the region, I mean, we're not talking big dollars to have a formal Australian media presence, a more exp expanded one. You know, Aspie had that great report a few years ago that, you know, the project that Graham Dobell led that really laid this out very, very clearly. Things like visas and scholarships, again, these are not expensive programs in the grand scheme of defence spending if we were to tot it all up. But they can have a huge impact, especially given that people-to-people -people relationships are so important in the Pacific. You kind of can't underestimate the value of Australians going to the Pacific and Pacific Islanders coming to Australia and just getting to know each other and understanding, you know, how we live and creating those relationships that last a lifetime. So, you know, there are a lot of things that can be, can be done. And I guess this is a frustration for myself and some others who, who talk about the region. There seems to be a strategic focus on the region that's not necessarily matched by a commitment to taking that next step beyond announcements to actually thinking about implementation and what can be done in a practical sense right now and not in hu at huge cost to, to really improve our relations in the Pacific and to improve how partners work together and work with Pacific Island states. I think that there's some valuable points there in terms of what the Australian government could be doing now, but also what they could be doing to work with other partners. So I think on that note, Joanne, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you. Dr. Malcolm Davis speaks to Lieutenant Colonel Carl Markram and Dr. Brenda Mulvaney from the US-China Aerospace Studies Institute about the concept of deterrence, something they explored in the recent ASPE report to deter the PRC. They consider how the People's Republic of China views and approaches deterrence in comparison to liberal democracies. So let's go firstly with Kyle. You want to talk about essentially the key issues that you've raised in that report? Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate it. One of the things that we talk about in our report is these different views of you know, coercion theory or deterrence. For example, one of the key things in the West will define coercion as the threats of force to shape the behavior of another actor. And that we talk about that this is an umbrella term that encompasses both deterrence and compellence. Deterrence seeking to convince an enemy to take an action he's not yet taken, whereas compellence seeks to persuade someone from doing something they would rather not do or to cease an action they've already begun. One of the important things to remember is the Department of Defense Joint Doctrine Note, JDN 2-19, uh, talks about these in terms of an enemy. But I think that it's more important to think about these in a broader context and include every anything from allies and partners to you know, other nations. It doesn't necessarily have to be an enemy that you're coercing. Along that same line of coercion theory, we talk about Thomas Schelling being kind of the godfather of it. He says that to be coercive, violence has to be anticipated and it has to be avoidable by accommodation. So what we're referring to is kind of the carrots and sticks. You, know, you have to have both the saying that things will be violent if they don't go a certain way, but also assurances of accommodation that needs to go along with it. 
in the Joint Pub 3-0, which is operations, it talks about the effectiveness of deterrence must be viewed from the perspective of the agent to be deterred. It's also summarized by other authors as deterrence occurs in the mind of the enemy. Again, enemy is a little bit simplistic, but deterrence occurs in the other person's mind. So we have to take into account what that person is thinking when we're trying to deter them or to coerce them. When we started kind of peeling away that onion, talking about that, it came up, well, what does the Chinese think of coercion and deterrence? Do they have the same doctrine as we do? And what we found is something that has been discussed a couple of times, but we really kind of dug into this idea of deterrence. The Chinese use the term wei shu. We commonly translate that as deterrence. In the Chinese People's Liberation Army military terms, it's often called the junyu, so the military terminology of it kind of their official military dictionary, they define strategic deterrence as a military strategy that shows or threatens the use of force to force an opponent to submit. And what we found is, look, reading through that and the 2001 Science and Military Strategy, they both deter Wei Xia as to stop the other side from doing something or to force the side to, that it must do something. In other words, the Chinese word that we commonly translate as deterrence is actually closer to the Western umbrella term of coercion. So, okay, semantics aside, what does that mean for us? Dr. Tammy Biddle in her article for the Texas National Security Review talks about how Department of Defense practitioners don't like to talk about coercion, seeing it more as blackmail. And maybe deterrence has this softer hand. That's one side of it is maybe China doesn't see this split and maybe trying to be softer to China, we're not actually getting that across and using deterrence. But I think a bigger part of it is when you start digging into Chinese deterrence, they have a split in coercion, deterrence, whatever you want to call it, in offensive deterrence and defensive deterrence. Offensive deterrence includes the concept of using a small war to stop a large war. Use it, it includes limited strikes or preemptive strikes in order to deter, and the concept that you must escalate in order to de-escalate. So all of these together kind of combine into a way that the People's Republic of China may take actions that they think are deterrent or in essence de-escalatory, but the United States and its allies and partners may see them as quite the opposite. So Brendan, if we want to take the concepts that Kyle has just explored and put them in a practical real world sense, for example, in the scenario of a Taiwan states crisis, how do you think China's conception of deterrence versus coercion is likely to play out. I think uh, Kyle hit it directly on the head. We have to understand what they're trying to signal to us, and we have to make sure that the signals we're trying to send are being received the way we want them to be, right? And sometimes the Chinese would act if they were trying to send a signal when we're just kind of doing it on our own. So we have to be aware of that. Specifically, when we talk about the Taiwan Straits issue, which is obviously the, the thorniest part there, where both sides are trying to walk this very thin line, how do we avoid conflict in something that to date, we've not found a suitable resolution for it, right? We can't have Taiwan independence. We don't want an invasion and occupation. We've got this weird status quo that's kind of a limbo and everybody seems to be happy enough with that for the time being. But there's certainly voices in the United States and voices in China that want to change that, but the change is going to go in a different direction. So it's really important for us to, to think about this from both sides so that when we communicate, we're very clear. But as Kyle said, there's also gotta be the carrots, right? So we can't just say, you know, don't invade Taiwan or we're gonna attack Shanghai or Beijing. We have to say, if you don't attack Taiwan, we will continue to work with you to try to come up with some sort of resolution. We may not be able to see that resolution now, but there's gotta be something down the road that 
maybe at some point somebody will think of. So that's really what I think is important specifically today is making sure that, that we know the message that we're transmitting is getting through in the way we want it to. But given China's activities in the gray zone, and particularly its likelihood that there's going to be increasing gray zone actions against Taiwan, does that not muddy the waters in terms of our understanding of their intent and thus our ability to deter and alternately their understanding of our actions and raises the, the consequences and the potential for miscalculation? Kyle, what's your thoughts on that? I think that's a great question. And I think, you know, when we talk about Chinese deterrence, you know, they agree with kind of the Western concept that there's the three C's of deterrence, the capability, the credibility, and the communication. And they emphasize that communication is the most important of those three. And oddly enough, I think that if you look at the world today, I think it's hard to say that communication is the thing that the West and China do very effectively. China with their official media and their spokespersons and things like that. But I think it's there's a muddied signal that goes back and forth between the United States and Beijing on issues like Taiwan. And I think that's something that we could work on, discussing with them how to communicate better. I think it would have implications across both you know, deterrence, properly sending deterrent signals, but I think also it could work for us on both sides for crisis management, being able to actually communicate if there were a crisis to occur. And Brendan, obviously, the China Aerospace Studies Institute is focused, as the name implies, on air power and space power. So do you have thoughts on how Chinese conceptions of deterrence applies, firstly, in the air domain, but secondly, in the space domain? Sure. And it's, a, it's an ongoing debate as to, you know, is there air deterrence, is there space deterrence, is there naval deterrence, or is it all just deterrence? And so I would say that's an open question. Certainly on the American side, I would say that the Chinese probably look at it more holistically than we do. And they think that actions across the spectrum, you know, can have deterrent capabilities. They wouldn't necessarily bin it the same way that we would. One thing we need to acknowledge is that Australia, the United States, and our allies are currently being deterred, right? Through gray zone activities, we haven't done anything to stand up to them. The flip side of that is the PLA is being deterred because they haven't tried to invade Taiwan. So deterrence is working both ways. It's just a question of what goals are we trying to ultimately achieve and where are we going to draw that line that we need to make sure that communication is clear. We would prefer them not to be doing some of the actions in the South China Sea on these features, but obviously they've deterred us enough where we've thought that the price is going to be too high. Our job now is to figure out how do we communicate that back to them that further actions either in the South China Sea after the uh, the ruling of the tribunal or anything in the uh, the Senkaku Islands or anything to do with Taiwan is going to be too much. So that's really what we're looking at now. And air and space are definitely going to be a, a major player in that, especially because the Chinese are starting to put more and more emphasis on that. As they see, those are the key enablers to any kind of modern warfare. So looking at this from a coalition perspective, from Washington, D.C.'s viewpoint, how do you see Australia and the U.S. working together to more effectively deter China from taking actions either against Taiwan or the South China Sea? So I think one of the first things is we need to continue to deepen the cooperation, right? So we have a good long history of it, but there's still a lot of room that, that we be working together even more closely. The discussion came up, the F-35 is a great start, but what about jointly working on a future bomber? Well, what about jointly working on just doctrine from the beginning? The United States, uh, you know, I work for the Doctrine Center for the Air Force, but a lot of times we look, how do we solve our doctrine problems first and then roll it out to our allies and partners? How do we get them in from the ground floor? And how do we knit together like-minded countries, whether they're allies, partners, or friends, 
in order to form this network that simply tells China, hey, these are the rules of the game. We're happy to have you play the game with us, but you have to abide by the rules. And if you violate them, there will be consequences. And Kyle, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think the hard part of all of this that we need to do is the education, both on the United States side, uh, but also it, you know, with our allies and partners to educate on China's thought. And remember, coercion occurs in the mind of the enemy. So we need to understand their thought process better. And something that we didn't cover in the article, but I hope to write about soon, is how their systems thinking is different from our linear thinking. And so we have to educate ourselves on how to think more like the Chinese in order to understand and even frame the problem the same way they are. Gentlemen, it's been a really excellent discussion and I thoroughly enjoyed reading the paper and certainly I recommend ASPE followers read the paper. It's the first of many that will come out of an aspie Cassie collaboration that's going forward now. And I think it's a timely topic and I thank you both for your thoughts on deterrence and coercion from a Chinese perspective. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. We look forward to working with ASPE now and in the future. Have a great day. Climate policy remains a hot topic in Australia, with Barnaby Joyce re-elected as Nationals leader and the federal government still not committing to net zero by 2050, Anastasia Kapetis and Dr Robert Glasser outline Australia's current position on climate policy. Okay, thanks Anastasia for joining me today to talk about Australia's climate change commitments. And the timing is really interesting. We now have this record temperatures being set in the northwest of the United States and Canada. In fact, yesterday, Canada had reached the highest temperature ever recorded in the country. So yes, these climate impacts are now becoming much more visible. No, that's right. And American government agencies are projecting one of the biggest droughts the country has ever seen this year. So it'll be interesting and disturbing to see how that plays out in terms of political responses on climate change throughout the country too. And it's the same constellation of events that we may remember from our own Black Summer a year ago, where we had record-setting drought, record-setting temperatures, and then record-setting fires that broke out across Australia. So yes, we'll hopefully that won't be what happens in the western northwestern United States, but it's not looking very nice. So in that context, I think a lot of people in Australia are still really confused about what is Australia's climate policy in the lead up to Glasgow at the end of the year and uh, how how might that change as pressure is brought to bear? Yeah, we have the prime minister hinting that Australia will endorse a net zero carbon emissions by the year 2050, a commitment. We have an existing climate commitment of 26 to 28 degree reduction on greenhouse gas emissions over 2005 levels. So yeah, what what do we think about this uh, commitment? There's a lot of noise in there. And then we have Barnaby Joyce, whose ascension to the deputy prime minister position has raised again the question of whether Scott Morrison's hinting at net zero by 2050 will actually happen now. No, that's also really interesting. The Nationals have also indicated that they might have a price for agreeing to net zero 2050. But I think the other thing that is interesting is that even if that occurs, really uh, net zero 2050 is not going to be enough. Do you want to comment a bit more on that, Robert? Well, yes. How much is enough? We know, firstly, that, well, 
there's a question of what is Australia's, quote, fair share, unquote, in reducing greenhouse gases. And there have been some analyses, Climate Tracker, for example, that says Australia is underperforming. We'd be at the very sort of bottom end of the scale. And if every country did the equivalent, we would not be achieving 1.5 or 2 degrees. It would be well over 2 degrees. So there's those comments. But then I think more importantly, you know, it's not really a question of a number. We need to be doing everything we can to reduce greenhouse gases, primarily for two reasons. One, we are disproportionately affected in Australia, as we saw with Black Summer. The climate impacts will be huge here. But secondly, they will be huge in our immediate region. Maritime Southeast Asia is a climate hotspot, so the hazards climate change is amplifying will hit that region more severely than virtually any region in the world. And there are 400 million people living there. So those problems will affect our national security very directly. So the real question is, given that constellation of threats and vulnerabilities, we should be doing everything we can to encourage the rest of the world to increase their ambition to reduce greenhouse gases as rapidly as possible. And in order to do that, we actually need to be seen to be taking very ambitious action ourselves. Because the real issue really is not 2050, it's 2030, isn't it? Yeah, as as you know, the International Energy Agency has just done, which is not a left-wing organization by any means, very conservative organization, has basically said that to not exceed the 1.5 degree warming agreed in the Paris Climate Agreement, countries really now cannot produce any additional fossil fuel factories and can't build other fossil fuel coal burning or others if we want to have any hope of preventing warming from exceeding 1.5 degrees. So really, Australia has three challenges really, doesn't it? It has to make a transition from its fossil fuel-based export dependency. It has to mitigate and adapt to the climate change that's already happening in Australia. And it also has to help the region to transition and to mitigate and adapt as well to avoid some of the worst security effects that climate change will bring. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it is interesting that on the adaptation side, there is wide bipartisan support. The the government and the Labour Party have together passed major adaptation legislation. It's not often tagged as adaptation legislation, whether it's the future drought fund or the emergency Mm. response fund. Those both passed with bipartisan support. So on the adaptation side, there is a lot of consensus, not surprisingly, given that, you know, no one wants to see suffering farmers. It's not a good look and it's certainly not good for the farmers. So yeah, there's a lot of commitment there. I think on the international front, we're not nearly doing enough because we're primarily, I think, because we're wildly underestimating how seriously, particularly not just the Pacific Island countries, but um, maritime Southeast Asia and Southeast Asia more generally are going to be hit by these climate hazards. So the federal government is one thing, Robert, but at the state level, Australia's doing something quite different. Yeah, in a way, it's similar to what was happening in the US during the Trump administration, where the states stepped up and started making commitments to reduce greenhouse gases that the federal government wasn't prepared to make at that point. And that certainly happened in this case. Every state and territory in Australia has committed now to net zero emissions by 2050. So yes, that's quite an important development. And it's interesting, it's been, those commitments have been electorally popular, 
They haven't attracted the, the political ire um, that's happened at the federal level. So will overseas investors, overseas allies be looking at the state level or will they just be looking at the federal level, do you think? You know, I think people who are familiar with Australia will, if we're talking about investment, they'll go where they see the best investment. And partly that will be investments that are resilient to climate change, that are not stranded assets focused on fossil fuels as opposed to the future of energy, which is in renewables. So I think at that level, that will, the market will speak. Um, I think internationally, in terms of the politics, I think we have a real problem in how we're perceived. We are really perceived to be at the back of the pack in terms of climate ambition. And that's it's a problem that needs to be addressed. Because I guess the other issue is that under the, the more grimmer scenarios, the three and four degree climate change scenarios, really adaptation is going to be very, very difficult, if not impossible, because we're looking at cascading effects here in Australia, in Southeast Asia, in our region, that would likely overwhelm capacity if we don't mobilise now. Yeah, I think, you know, we can make, and countries have made already, a lot of progress in adaptation to climate impacts. But, as you've said, the scale of the hazards, which are now accelerating, this is accelerating non-linearly, so what we've seen over the last 10 years isn't what we can expect over the next 10 years. We will, we're now starting to see these year-on-year year and back-to-back events. And the scale of these hazards will be so enormous that they will risk of overwhelming any of the adaptation measures we put in place. If the climate warms to beyond 2 degrees to 3, it's just inconceivably bad. So we have to do whatever we can to make sure that doesn't happen. So as a final point of exploration here, what do we think the rest of the world is going to do in the lead up to COP, but also afterwards, given that the Northern Hemisphere is having historic heat this year, given that every day there are more announcements, for example, um, over the last couple of weeks, Japanese, Korean insurers and banks have declared for no coal investment. They won't underwrite coal. Movement is also moving against gas in that direction. Will Australia actually need to, say by the middle of next year, be much, much more more ambitious in terms of what it does? I think the ambition for climate action is going to grow dramatically. And it's primarily because the impacts are becoming very visible. Now, they're visible in the algorithms that investors and regulators are looking at. They can see the climate signal in terms of vulnerable infrastructure and in terms of rating agencies and the pressures for transparency and disclosure of climate risk, not just by companies, but by government agencies as well as a legal requirement. These sorts of things are accelerating. Ironically, the momentum is increasing because the technology of renewables is just plummet. The cost of the technology is, is plummeting. And so we also have this really remarkable, profound global energy transformation that's further driving the awareness that not only is this a climate a problem, but we have a solution that is working and that is already in most or in many markets already renewables are competitive, not just relative to new coal or gas-fired plants, but even to continued operation of a coal-fired plant relative to new renewables. So the... IEA report says that current technologies, renewable technologies, will take us to 2030 in terms of taking us some way towards 
the right kind of abatement. But after that, they say that progress depends on technologies that aren't yet proved. That has implications for Australia, doesn't it? Because the Prime Minister uh, before the G7 announced in or in a speech that Australia is really going to depend on that technological route to, to make its contribution to climate change. Well, I think, yes. So even both the IPCC 1.5 degree of warming report and the IEA report that you mentioned both assume that it will be impossible to keep warming below 1.5 degrees without technologies like carbon capture and sequestering carbon. And these technologies are unproven technologies. And so there's at least a very strong element of doubt about whether they'll be available or not. I think more importantly, in terms of the technology-driven solution, of course, the technology is key and the market's going to make that happen. And governments could accelerate that transition, for example, by removing subsidies on fossil fuels, Mm -hmm. which are an economic inefficiency. So they could certainly accelerate that, but it is really important that we do everything we can to reduce greenhouse gases, including promoting renewables and the deployment of renewables, accelerating that, and reducing greenhouse gases as rapidly as possible. That's right. I guess putting in policies in place to reduce energy consumption is, is a big part of that. The IEA report also says that, and also that governments need to invest really heavily in technology inappropriate technologies and and next generation solar wind and other renewable technologies as well. So really we're looking at a kind of a whole of government policy mobilisation effort that we're not seeing right now. And again, just to underscore some of the points you've already made, it's really because we're not really seeing the seriousness of the problem. We're not seeing the whole threat picture. It is so obviously in Australia's interest, given the, our domestic vulnerabilities and our the regional vulnerabilities that I mentioned a while ago, that we do everything we can to encourage others. We, we can't, of course, solve the climate crisis on our own as Australia, but we should be doing everything we can to promote greater ambition. The key challenge in the decades ahead, there are all these encouraging signs with renewable energy, the role of the financial regulators and the economic competitiveness of, of, of energy, of renewable energies. So there are the encouraging signs. There's also the public opinion surveys that suggest Australians and actually globally want strong action on climate. The real challenge is whether those promising signs have a big enough impact to forestall warming over 1.5 or 2 degrees and Right now we're on track for probably over two degrees of warming, which would be really devastating. It would be a catastrophic level of warming that would see things that we've never seen before, massive food and water shortage in Australia in the region. And just looking at how instructive it's been in terms of COVID, looking at government mobilisation, its ability to mobilise, the effect that it has on citizens and the public, public panic. These are all things to think about when we think about what those unfortunately, at the moment, quite likely scenarios of three and four degrees. Yeah, I guess in that respect, COVID is encouraging in that it does demonstrate that when the public and government acutely feels a threat, it's possible to make these profound changes in the way we do things. And that's the sort of response we need to address the climate risk and climate threats that we've been talking about. Thanks, Robert. Thanks, Anastasia. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. We'll be back with another episode next week.